This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for part two of our interview with John Greathouse, where we're talking hands-on and high-engagement investing. In this part, we will cover how the nature and intensity of John's interaction changes over the course of a startup's development, John's opinion on accelerators and if they're an index investing strategy or not, his thoughts on firms that are high volume and low engagement. We also talk about the number of portfolio companies in which an investor can be highly engaged, other thoughts on ways that investors can be most helpful And we'll take a little sidebar to talk about diversity on both sides of the table from the VC perspective as well as the entrepreneurial perspective. Here's part two on hands-on investing. So you mentioned that the sort of nature and intensity of your interaction changes over the course of a startup's development. Uh, at, At what stage of funding are you getting more hands-off and a little more passive from an engagement standpoint? That's a great question and hard to put numbers to it, but but I kind of think of it as the zero to one million. You know, we're usually coming in at about 40 to 50,000 a month in um, monthly recurring revenue. You know, so our companies are kind of well on that way to, to reaching the first uh, million in annual revenue. And we're very involved along that way. I'd say a million to five million, we're very involved. You start getting to the five and 10, I should be stepping back. Hopefully we're bringing in investment dollars that are more growth oriented. And clearly that 10 to 20 million in annual current revenue, that's where you want to grow fund. We've got Excel, Sequoia, Finder, Volition, firms like that in our deals. And we love to see them come in because they're just frankly a lot better at that growth stage than we are. So we think we have a role to play in the earlier stages and we know they have a role to play in the later stages. Gotcha. So, John, accelerators often have the appearance of being very hands-on, but many say that they're just using an index investing strategy and are outsourcing the advising. Uh, What's your stance here? Well, I think that's a pretty broad statement. So, I mean, that's almost like saying graduate schools are worthless, right? I think it's true. There are a lot of graduate schools that are worthless, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but there's also a handful that that, that actually add value. So, I was involved with an accelerator through Rincon. Rincon and Mark Schuster's firm up front sponsored Launchpad LA, very successful accelerator, top rated for a number of years. Yeah. Um, and I felt like I felt like our approach was um, was truly value add. And if you look at the graduates and the follow on fundings and even the exits we've had companies that were acquired, I think we we actually did add value along the way and helped companies get funded and help them grow. You know, it's, whenever something becomes popular, it's going to be overdone. I think at one point we had 15, 17 accelerators in LA, most of which are gone now. So certainly a lot of those did a poor job of executing and just quite are no longer around. 
I think the ones that have lasted, I can't really speak to the tertiary markets. There's probably some accelerators in places that I'm not even aware of that are not doing a great job. But I think most of the accelerators that have been around for a while have proven that they are delivering some value beyond just the cachet of saying you got into that particular accelerator. At least I want to believe that. And I have seen it. We've invested in a couple of Y Combinator alumni recently. And just the network, you know, the Y Combinator is able to provide as well as some of that early advice that they give is it's certainly a value. Yeah, for sure. Apples to apples, the startups I see come out of the top tier accelerators are ahead of uh, a lot of the the startups that haven't gone through that process. So um, it's pretty clear that there's some significant value add going on. Yeah, but it's not one size fits all. I think that's the problem. And when, uh, you know, there's 55,000 TechCrunch articles about accelerators, it's just everyone thinks, oh, that's something I have to do now. Right. Um, and again, it's like graduate school. Like graduate school is not for everybody. And, and certainly accelerators are not for every startup either. Any thoughts on venture firms that are more high volume and low engagement? Well, we love them because we work with all of them and we think they provide, you know, a very valuable part of the ecosystem. So when we syndicate our deals, we're almost never the only investor. We love having co-investors alongside of us. But oftentimes when you're super early, there's not room for two active hands-on investors. It just doesn't make sense. It's a little overpowering for the startup. So it's great for us to have folks that are not looking for that. They're more willing to have a portfolio strategy where they have a lot of investments and less direct involvement. But what's also great about it is many of the folks that we co-invest with can be very, very helpful when called upon. What we found is they all want to help. They all are willing to be helpful, but you have to use them as a resource. They're not going to proactively, they're just not going to think about you and check in. You have to get to reach out to them and say, hey, I noticed you know this person in your network. Can you please make an intro? Right. Yeah. I could imagine they, uh, they appreciate partnering with you as well if you're taking an active role in providing a lot of value early on without uh, affecting the, the burn side of the equation with the startup. I'd like to think so. <laughs> they keep coming <laughs> back for more. So. <laughs> so, John, what's a realistic number of portfolio companies uh, in which a, an investor can be highly engaged? So depending on the definition, highly. So if you're talking about that weekly level, it's probably four to six but then you're going to have another four to six that are at that next plateau that I was talking about, some of the five to 12 million ARR kind of in that range. And you're not talking to those companies every week. That would just be ridiculous. So they're not going to take as much of your time. And then if you have another four to six that are in that third category of post 10 million, you're having quarterly board meetings. The full exec team is in place. These people don't need your involvement on an ongoing basis. 15, if they're broken out kind of that way, five, five, and five, or, or some, some variation of that. But I think where it gets complicated is when you throw in fundraising, for instance, if you're a VC and you're raising a new fund, now you've got a whole new set of meetings, a whole kind of work overlay that you don't normally have. Sometimes that can be challenging. So when you're in that transition between funds, it can get even tougher. But once you're fully funded and you've got another three or four years to go out there and do new investments, it's pretty manageable. Yeah, I was watching a panel with Manu Kumar and Hunter Walk and Jeff Clavier and some others at pre-money this past year. And they were sort of debating how many board seats uh, they could actively hold at one time. What was their consensus? I think the low end was five. And I think the highest end was 10. 
And the ones that were on five active board seats couldn't fathom that somebody could handle 10 at a time. But I guess it all, kind of what you said, it all depends on how active you need to be um, and how far along each of the startups are. Yeah. I mean, you know, a good example is a company called Invoca, which um, is a pretty high-profile company in our portfolio. It's a fun one company. We've been in that company for a long time. At the beginning, I was involved with the founder in the ideation stage. I mean, literally, we were sitting there going through ideas. I helped him recruit the CEO and recruit the CTO. They became three founders of the company. So fast forward to now, Excel's in the deal. Mark Suster's in the deal. We've got like an incredible board of very, very skilled senior executives, and I'm able to be less involved. I mean, it's not four times a year. That's when we have our official board meetings, but, you know, it's it's a lot less than uh, it was in the early days. And so that one, to me, has really played out the way we hope all of our companies play out, is they just outgrow the need for an early-stage um, focused firm. John, any other thoughts on how investors can be more active and where venture capitalists can be most helpful to startups at the early stages? It seems like the biggest impact you can have is recruiting in the very early stages. I know we have four companies that are hiring their very, very first salespeople. They have anywhere between zero and four salespeople. Um, One, somebody that I had as a student at UCSB and I placed in a startup, cloud computing startup, and he went to Google he just joined one of our startups as going to be their sales leader. Um, and he's, you know, it's going to be a game changer for them if he delivers as I think he will. Um, and that was just somebody that came out of um, our personal network. I think and maybe I'm just biased because that that's an area we, we tend to try to add value in, but I think being able to put the right person in the right company at the right time, someone that the CEO just has no, they're not aware of the person. I think that's a really impactful way in that first you know, 12 months to help a company get ready to do a series A or, or a series B, depending on what stage you're at. You know, it could be a CTO, it could be a VP of sales, it could be a VP of marketing, whatever the role is. Um, but I think those kinds of hires are, you know, they just have a huge impact. So I take it you kind of look at the the skill profile of the founding team and then figure out where the gaps are and where they need to right. fill some uh, strategic value-added executives. Yeah, and that's a conversation, right? It's not, I think one of the tenets of our investment strategy is we never invest in a team that we don't think can get over the goal line. We don't look at a team and say, well, we're going to have to blow three of these people out, you know, they're, they're B players. We just say no to those deals. We're always going in saying we think and hope that this is the team that's going to be standing when this thing's done. And let's be honest with who you guys think is missing around the table. And so we have that conversation and that's, you know, it's good to see how self-aware these folks are. If they, if they realize they need an upgrade in product development, if they need an upgrade in sales or whatever, um, that's really good to know. The other thing that I think the pattern that we often match to is a sales oriented CEO with a technical founder. One thing that we've gotten good at, I think just because we've had had to do it several times is helping the sales oriented founder who's proven that he or she can sell the product. You know, they're just, they can sell anybody, but they have a 100% hit rate. Trying to help them figure out how do we make that into a process where maybe somebody without the experience, maybe they have passion, but maybe they don't have the passion a founder would have. They don't have the credibility a founder would have. How do we take all of your learning and skills and ability to deal with objections, and how do we port that over to this team of salespeople that we now need to bring in? And that's where a lot of companies sort of die in the vine, right? They have success with that passionate founder that can sell 
and then they have a hard time transferring that knowledge to a team. Sure. So can you talk a little bit about some of the things you're currently most focused on at Rincon? So we're on our third fund. So fund three is almost closed. We think we'll close it out in the next the coming weeks. So we'll have a close out by the end of the year. It'll be about $40 million fund, which is perfect for two people. I think it's the right size for two partners. And for the size of investments that we do, we're using about a million to a million and a half our first check. And we reserve about the same amount for ongoing investments. We do invest all the way up until the valuations just get really crazy and that doesn't make sense for us to participate. But we are an ongoing supportive investor. We bring in a lot of our um, LPs. They invest alongside of us in the subsequent rounds. And a lot of our founders have found that very helpful. So even a, a good example is in our second fund, which is about $31 million change. Uh, we've deployed about 22 of that. And I think that alongside of us, our investors have put about 34 into our companies. So oh, it's wow. 50 million all told, which is a nice, it's a good approach for everyone. The entrepreneurs like it because it's low friction capital. The LPs like it because they can put more dollars to work without a fee. And we like it because we can build out syndicates with people we know and trust. Yep. It works for everyone. So I've got this class of fund three investments. We have about six of them now. They're all that early stage founder centric companies that I was describing earlier. And, you know, they're, they need help in a lot of areas. So we're doing a lot of weekly phone calls and doing early stage stuff. A lot of our fund two companies have graduated from that level of attention. So we're just not spending as much time with the fund two guys. And the process will just continue as these 2015 investments start growing up and maturing. Then I'll start spending time more time with these 2016 investments that are yet to be done. And this is out of curiosity. I'm wondering the sidecar investments that they bolt on, do you get a carry on those? Yes and no. It kind of depends on, for the most part, no. In a few cases, it's just made sense for us to create a special vehicle. It's going to depend on a variety of factors, but it's not 100% either way. This is going to sound Pollyannish, and maybe someone here in this will say this is bullshit, but it's the way we feel. It's the way we carry out our creator syndicates. We really want to pull together the right money with the right people. That's going to make the most sense for the, for the venture, for the company, for the CEO. There's been a couple of times where uh, a special vehicle just made sense. And in many other cases where it didn't, where we just said, hey, look, we're not in this for any additional carry or any points or fees or anything. We just want to help the company get funded so that in the end, everybody will benefit as the company grows and can use that capital to go to the next level. If we could address any topic in venture, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? You know, it's going to sound cliche, but um, I spend a lot of time in my classes and I've brought in a speaker series. UCGB actually films it, so actually gets a lot of views. I'm quite proud of it. What I try to use that forum for is to bring in different faces of entrepreneurship and different faces of investing. There's just a whole lot of guys like me that are 40 to 55, went to an Ivy school, they're white, they just have a very sort of similar background. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, look, that's just the reality of it. But I'm trying to bring, I'm trying to model other people for my students so that they can see that, yes, that is the majority at this point, but we're trying to change that. And I think one way you change it is you get folks that have had success to, to tell their story. So women, um, I wrote a Wall Street Journal article that got a little bit of play because I was a little controversial calling women out and saying, look, if you want to help get this next generation going, you've got to be willing to speak at these events. 
I can tell you that if I ask a guy to speak, 90% of the time I get a yes. And the only the 10% is usually just scheduling. It's not because they don't want to do it. But guys love to get up there and just toot their horn and talk about all the <laughs> great shit they did, right? It's just like it's hard to get them off stage. I ask a woman, and the majority of the time, I get a very deferential sort of, oh, I don't think there's really anything that special about my story, or I had a lot of help, or you really should talk to this other person. And it's like, no, you you were, you know, nobody does it alone, but you were instrumental in this venture. And I want my students to understand your story. So there's a bit more cajoling on my part that I've learned I have to do to try to get women. The other reason that they are less visible is, and this is messed up, right? This is just sort of societal. Even very, very successful, either investors or, or, or entrepreneurs, they're still looked at at home to be that primary caregiver. And I've actually had women say, it's hard for me to, to take a day and come to Santa Barbara because oh, my kids are in school. And, you know, I just have to deal with that reality. Whereas I've never had a guy say that to me. Like a guy has never said, oh, my child rearing um, responsibilities that preclude me from speaking at your class. So, you know, until we solve those realities, it's, it's, it is going to be a challenge. We're going to see fewer women on the stage. But anyone who's listening to this, Please, I'm encouraging you, um, especially folks that are, don't fit that monolithic image of, of today's tech community, go out of your way to get up and, and, and write, blog, speak, be visible, be vocal, because there is somebody out there that's going to hear you and you're going to make a difference. You're going to have an impact on somebody. You're probably not going to know who, but you will guarantee it. I brought people in that didn't fit that mold, and I saw the impact they had on my students as well as the people that watch the shows after they're filmed. Yeah, it's a it's a true observation. I mean, I have the same situation with the program here. I I think of people we've asked on the show that are male, we've got over 80% conversion, mm-hmm. but uh <laughs> with the women it's south of 50%. I think it's like yeah. closer to 35. It's just uh I don't know why, but fortunately we've got a couple wonderful investors coming up that are women and um, shame on me for not getting more on the program. Well, it's, uh, listen, I'm in the same boat. It's not easy. It, well, first off, it's a smaller pool, right? So the population is dramatically smaller. Um, and then if you're getting less conversion, I love your term. If you're getting less conversion on those invitations, then it's even a small pool. So if you're getting half the conversions and the pools are 10 the size, I mean, think about that. That's a huge difference. In the number of folks, and you don't want something that I'm sure you're cognizant of is I don't want to bring someone in that doesn't really rise to that same level of um, influence or success just because they're a woman, right? That just, that's not going to help anybody. Like I want to bring in people that when they stand up on the stage, they have just as much or more to offer than any of the other men that I bring in. Sure. Um, so you don't want to sort of lower the, the the bar, so to speak, and and I think that's important. Because we want to show these powerful, strong, intellectually curious women that have gone out there and made a huge impact. So my daughter's an entrepreneur. You know, she I want her to have role models and not just the five that we hear about over and over, right? Like, <laughs> I get it. Spanx, right? The chicken did Spanx. I get it. Or Oprah. These are wonderful people. But there's a lot of other women that just don't get that. They don't have a PR person, right? telling their story, and I'm looking for those people. I'm looking for the people whose story hasn't been told uh, 50 times. Yeah, you know, I wonder if because there is a smaller percentage of, of women in VC, maybe they have so many people grabbing at them. I think um, that's it. 
you know, and so they just, they got to say no more. But yep, I think that is part of it. You're right. The pool of venture capitalists, especially, is smaller. So, you know, I think you're, you have a bigger challenge than I do because I could draw from entrepreneurial operators as well. And there's, fortunately, that pool is growing. Um, and the younger women I've noticed, they seem to be more willing to come and tell their story, which, which is interesting. And I think it bodes well for all of us, but it's still it's a challenge. John, any quick thoughts on Title Three and what it might mean for the startup fundraising landscape? I'm not an expert at all on Title Three, so I only know the you know, the handful of articles I've read as a layman. I'm a sort of an anti-regulatory guy, so it's kind of funny. I'm a, I consider myself a bit of a libertarian, so it's kind of funny that in this case, I'm a little bit nervous that people could get hurt. I'm a little bit nervous that you might have nefarious people under the banner of venture capital, under the banner of entrepreneurship, they're going to get people to watch Shark Tank to write checks that they shouldn't write. That's my concern. Again, I'm not close enough to Title III to tell you that that law is imperfect and it's going to cause that to happen or not. But I am concerned about that. I just think that there's so much popular press about how much money can be made in entrepreneurship. I talk to people that just are close to it, friends and family members. And there's such a misconception about what it takes to be successful uh, in the real world of startups and how hard it really is. I'm just afraid that people might be taking advantage of. Yep. Yep. So uh, just to wrap up here, John, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Well, it's, I always feel like if I have to give out an email address, people aren't trying hard enough. So <laughs> I will say that you can find my email any, all over the internet. Just look, look for it. I try to acknowledge messages on Twitter so my Twitter is just my name, um, at John Greathouse, G-R-E-A-T-H-A-U-S-E. And I try to be mindful of people that are reaching out to me through Twitter. I can't tell you that I'm going to have a 100% hit rate on that, but I try to. Those are probably the best ways. If you can find my UCSB professor email, which is readily findable, or if you want to try to hit me up on Twitter, those are probably the two best ways. Well, next time my wife and I are back in SB, hopefully we get a chance to connect. But uh, Excellent. otherwise, thanks so much for uh, spending the time with us today. I'll take you out to campus and we'll do some little three-footers together. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and talk about startup investing, right? <laughs> That's right. Thanks a lot, Nick. I really appreciate it. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex Corporate Card for Startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee, and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group, or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. 
Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So great to get John's perspective. Let's recap the key takeaways. Number one is called building institutional mass. John stated that the single biggest impact a VC can have at the early stages is on recruiting. He stressed the importance of putting the right person in the right company at the right time. It can be a big challenge to recruit top talent and build a team very early on. John focuses on roles that can help address the key company objectives. Needs will vary by business type, but he mentioned a sales leader, a marketing leader, and a financial person to manage payables and receivables. And the primary way that John helps is by using his network to find great candidates, and he actually conducts the interviews to vet individuals and find the right team for his portfolio startups. Key takeaway number two is called types of involvement. John talked about different ways that he gets involved, including on the marketing side, on the sales side, executive leadership, from an alignment standpoint, and then finally on learnings he's had from previous challenges. I wanted to review some of those. Let's start with marketing. John aims to drive inbound over outbound marketing through methods like content marketing. He referred to this as earned marketing instead of paid marketing. How do you get customers to come to you instead of just hitting them with advertising? The second point was around sales. With regards to sales, John encourages founders to not be afraid of hiring salespeople in front of revenue. Sometimes the entrepreneur needs to be pushed a little to spend money. Part of what got them to the stage where they can take venture funding is that they bootstrapped and were very frugal. This is a great characteristic, but can make it hard to change the mentality and spend the money when it's the right time to spend. The third type of involvement was around executive leadership. For the first 12 to 18 months, John will act as an adjunct member of the executive team, not only offering strategic advice, but also getting hands-on on the marketing and tactical actions. As the company scales and fills in the executive seats around the table, the interaction becomes less frequent moving from weekly calls to one every couple weeks and then maybe one per month. The next point John made was about alignment. The smaller number of investments one makes, the more engaged they can be. Maybe Rincon is not going to be the highest valuation, but they will really put in the work to help achieve the milestones. And they will even align themselves, from an equity standpoint, with the entrepreneurs so that everyone has the same agenda. And the final point here is called learning from previous challenges. John also talked about how with their focus on B2B SaaS, they see a similar set of challenges, especially on the marketing side. And for many founders, this will be their first time encountering these challenges. So John is able to leverage learnings from the portfolio and help new companies navigate their marketing challenges. All right, the third and final takeaway is called level of involvement. John and I discussed the number of companies in which he can be highly engaged. He said that typically comes in as an investor at the 40 to 50K per month range in MRR. 
where the company will be well on their way to achieving $1 million in annual revenue. And as these portfolio companies grow from $1 to $5 million, RinCon is very involved and interaction is at the weekly level. A manageable number of portcos at this stage, from John's standpoint, is 4 to 6. Now, when a startup reaches the 5 to $10 million range in annual revenue, this is when they begin stepping back and working at the biweekly or monthly level of involvement. And the appropriate number for them is another four to six port codes at this stage. And finally, post $10 million in annual revenue, the startup has reached that growth phase and they begin working more with growth stage investors. This is where John's level of interaction scales back to participation in quarterly board meetings only. Okay, let's wrap up with our tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Hardware as an Anchor. In today's discussion, we talked about Rincon's specialty in B2B SaaS and the reliable, fast-growing revenue streams that can be created in that segment. This got me thinking about products and business models that create long-term streams of reliable and sticky revenue. And while we talked a bit about software, I wanted to take this week's tip to touch on hardware. And one of the best models that I have used myself is the Razor Razor Blade model. I suspect most of you are familiar with this. If not, simply the model is to sell a foundational product that uses a consumable with some recurring frequency. It's called the Razor Razor Blade model because that solution typifies the model. Sell a razor into a set of customers that then have to purchase consumables, i.e. blades, on a regular basis. Gillette doesn't make their money on razors, but they make a fortune on the blades. Other common examples are printers and printer cartridges, or a Keurig coffee machine, and the pods. Once an installed base of machines exists in the marketplace, the consumable revenue stream is very predictable and very high margin. I'd like to take a minute to walk you through a personal example of a product development that fits this model. Just before I embarked on startup investing full-time, I spent three years developing a product. From the ideation and requirements definition stage through concept testing, development, pre-selling, and launch. It was a very involved process that gives me enormous appreciation for entrepreneurs developing breakthrough products. This product was for the water testing market. If you think about a drinking water facility in your city, their goal is to stay off the front page of the newspaper. They do not want people dying from unsafe water. So they treat drinking water extensively and then send it out through the plumbing distribution systems all the way to your home. But while the water is traveling through the system, it can become compromised and the disinfectants in the water can wear off. So every municipality has to send employees out in their trucks to travel all throughout the water distribution system and run a series of chemistry tests at many different nodes. A city as large as Chicago or San Francisco employs whole fleets of people to conduct this testing at thousands of endpoints every day. This data also has to be reported with some frequency to the EPA. In the existing process, a worker would perform three to seven different chemistry tests at each node. They may be testing for chlorine, fluoride, nitrites, ammonias, pH, etc., Each of these different chemistry tests involves measuring, mixing powders, chemicals, timing, 
and a series of other workflow steps, which all had potential to introduce inefficiency and errors in the results. Try and imagine a guy working with small powder packets and tiny liquid bottles measuring to the microliter on the back of his truck in sub-freezing Chicago winters. Then he'd write all the results on a clipboard and move to the next testing location. You can probably imagine this is a very costly and labor-intensive exercise fraught with errors in the data. The vision was a future in which the water testing data was 99% reliable and acquired in a fraction of the time. And that's what we developed. Small, microfluidic chips, as we called them, that had all the chemistry reagents and water mixing channels captive within the consumable. And also a base instrument with all the mixing cycles, heating, measuring, and GPS track data all built and programmed in. It was a product that transferred steps from human to machine and automated the workflow. And on top of the hard products, the data management for the device was a soft solution upsell, functioning as a B2B SaaS product and revenue stream. So it became a razor razor blade plus SaaS. While our product development team was surrounded by skeptics throughout the organization, the naysayers have now become big believers. It's amazing how sales success in the market can change the rhetoric almost overnight. While the process of raising capital, defining requirements, doing thousands of customer interviews, and executing a very complicated R&D effort was the biggest challenge I've ever encountered, it was also the most rewarding. And hardware products, in general, are tough. One can't just change or fix something post-launch with a line of code. And many investors I know avoid hardware altogether. It's expensive, difficult to develop, can be a channel and logistics nightmare, and is inflexible. But circling back to the razor razor blade concept, if the product is revolutionary and encourages regular use, it can be very lucrative. This is not a one-time product sale. It's an annuity. The product sale is not the end of a low-margin revenue stream. It's the beginning of a high-margin repeatable one. And a key benefit here is that once a hardware product is placed with a customer, it becomes embedded. As easy as it is to replace an app from the home screen of a smartphone, it's an order of magnitude harder to convince customers to replace a physical device. Installed base inertia makes the leaky bucket customer funnel much less leaky. So before dismissing those hardware startups from consideration, I consider things from a SaaS perspective. Is the product a cost anchor, a one-time widget sale that a customer will end up using as a paperweight? Or is it a revenue anchor, where each sale is the beginning of a healthy, sticky, high-margin annuity? That's it for today. If you have a chance and you're getting some value from the program, I'd really appreciate a shout-out on Twitter. And whether you're an investor or an entrepreneur, please feel free to reach out on email. I'm Nick at fullratchet.net and always enjoy connecting with people that are passionate about startups. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you again soon.